0: You say, "Jehovah Shalom." Jehovah Shalom. There are uh, so many themes in the Bible, and so many things we could say, "Man, this is a theme all throughout Scripture, but in general, in general, God brings goodness and order to chaos. God creates good things, and we rebel. And so much of scripture, so much of our life, uh, you know, we're at church, so we're going to talk about the Bible because that's eternal truth. But just for a minute, put yourself in your world because you like that. You like to be in your world. That's our rebellion. You want to be in your world. What is chaotic? What is wreaking havoc? What's not going well in your world? If only this was happening, then this would happen. Right. This is your mantra. This is your drumbeat this week. I don't know if you have had a terrible week this last week. Maybe it's the best week of the year for you. Um, This last week has been terrible for me. Uh, And that happens. Some weeks are that way. Um, But when we sing, I know my Jehovah Shalom, then we're claiming that there's a God who says he's with us always, that he has all authority, and he's making things right. And so here in a moment, we're going to pray. And sometimes we can get... Uh, in these patterns and these rituals, and things lose their meaning. Um, and we pray before every sermon, you know, uh, someone on the worship team prays, then I come up here and pray. Uh, and that's fine, that's not just a cute segue to get us ready to learn information for me to talk a lot. I want to pray this morning to invite us to start specifically looking to the Lord and trusting that His Word is true. We're going to be talking about faith this morning. And in general, faith is believing that God's Word is true, that God is true, despite what our eyes see and what our minds think. And, and so right now, there's chaos in your life, I'm sure. There has to be. Uh, there's chaos in my life. And, and I hope that in a mix of all that, you still see Jehovah Shalom that you see God bringing peace. Because the word peace means to make right, to to bring back the building that is broken and has cracks and holes in it, but to restore it to new. And so when we say that peace is a promise he keeps, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus is bringing peace. Even though my mind might not be able to conceive it, my feeler doesn't work and I don't feel it. When, when you hear those moments when you're cutting a piece of meat and you decide this is the moment I need to cry because I'm sad and, and it doesn't make sense. Jehovah Shalom. He is bringing peace. He himself is our peace. So as we pray and you get out your Bible, I want you to think through what is it in your life that is wreaking havoc? What is chaotic? And remember that so far what we're seeing in scripture is that God creates good things. Jehovah Shalom. He brings peace to chaos and he's doing that in our church. He's doing that in my life. He's doing that in your life, even if we don't see it because his word is true and we put faith in that. Let's pray. God, there's so many people who are sick and who are hurting and who want to be here and can't. Um, so many things, God, there's so many names that can run through our head and can look around and we, we know that people aren't here because of uh, distant times of hurt and maybe getting disconnected with, with the church. There are people not here because they're sick. There are people who are not here because other people are sick and uh, there's so much going on, God. And it's so easy for, for me, for us, to just get down, to look at, uh, it's hard. And you tell us that you can empathize, that, that you have gone through all the things we went through through Christ and that you love us and that you're with us always. God, we want to claim faith in Jehovah Shalom in you bringing peace this morning. I pray that you would speak to us as we read your word, as we make sense of these things in Genesis. We talk about uh, all the different things here. God, I pray that beyond everything, we would put faith in you and trust that you're making all things new. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for being our peace. Amen. Uh, if you could grab a Bible, we're going to be, uh, man, every week we're going to be in uh, in chunk, large chunks of the Bible, but we're usually going to try to hone in on it. If you've missed out, uh, our church is reading through the whole Bible this year together. And so every week, we've got a collection of verses that we're reading through. We're following uh, the Bible Recap Bible plan, and then every week, uh, Adam and I, and, and maybe sometimes Nathan or, or someone else, will be preaching what we feel God wants us to focus in on that. We're going to try to kind of spend a little bit uh, at the beginning of the sermon and maybe at the end of the service talking about where we've been in Scripture and where we're going so we can help catch up, and you'll hear me say so often, please don't let getting behind Make you behind and downtrodden and naked. Just pick it up. Wherever we're at, say, What man, what, where are we at today? Okay, I'm going to start reading here because we'll get you caught up. Uh, even if you can't go back and read all of Genesis or whatever, we can summarize it and we can get caught up because the whole point is to read scripture together this year, to know the word of the Lord, and to know that the, the whole Bible is one unified story that points to King Jesus. And so when we say that he has all authority, we say that he is with us always. So therefore, we go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things he's commanded us. Why? Why do we do all that? Like, oh, because Jesus died for my sins. What does that mean? What is the gospel? This is what we're doing this year. We're reading through all of scripture, and we're talking about And so if you're behind, just jump in on it, and we'll be trying to, to recap that. But... So far, we've gone through Genesis 1 through 31, right? And then all of Job. That's, uh, that's where we've been. So that sounds like a ton to catch up on. It's not so bad. Uh, we're going to talk about it here a little bit. Uh, Last week, Adam taught on Job, right? Um, my, my main two cents on Job is Job is a mystery. Uh, side note, for there's a two moments in this sermon for you Bible nerds. If you're watching from home, you're sitting up there, you're like, ooh, I like when you get nerdy. Right? This is, this is one of your moments. Here it comes. Job has the most foreign Hebrew words in it than any other text. Every other text, ancient Hebrew text, there's some combination of words that they just don't know. It's a dead language, Hebrew is, right? They don't know it. Job has more words in it that no one knows exactly what they mean. And I think that speaks to a small purpose of what Job is. Job is a mystery. And even the Hebrew scholars who read it, they're like, man, I don't know what this word means and it doesn't really appear anywhere else. And so we're trying to contextually figure out what this word means. If you read through all of Job, you would walk out of it being like, It doesn't answer any of the questions that you want it to answer. It doesn't tell you why good things happen to bad people or bad things happen to good people. It doesn't answer all those questions. What it does say is that God is above us, that he is good, and that he responds to us. That's what it says. And I think that says something about us that we want it to answer all these questions that it doesn't. It says something about our limitations, our limitation of knowledge, our limitation. And it says something about God welcoming our doubts, our struggles, that we come to him and we say, Father, I believe, help my unbelief, like the guy in Mark 9. And God meets us there, right? God still, Jesus still heals that guy's son in Mark 9. Right? He doesn't say, well, you only believe 22% and I need 23.8. That's the part. No, he's, okay. I'll help your unbelief, right? And so, uh, so we've been through Job. When we went through Genesis 1 through 11, we talked about a couple weeks back, God speaks. He speaks good things. He speaks 10 times. That's going to be kind of a theme all throughout Scripture. He speaks 10 times. He calls seven things good. That's where these numbers 10 and 7 kind of come from. And God cares about a relationship with us. He is faithful. Say, the Lord is faithful. Laird is faith, We're going to be talking about that. Um, now, interesting, we left, the last time I was up here, I talked about the Tower of Babel. And if you remember the Tower of Babel, you also connect it to Babylon, and there's so many nerdy things about that. But the big deal is that they were trying to make a name for themselves. We could be like God. We could decide what's good and evil, just like Genesis 3. So they build this tower, and God comes down and simply just confuses them, and they can't do it because God is above them, right? And then we get to Genesis 12. How does Genesis 12 start? Hey, open your Bibles. I'll actually, I'll do here. A lot of times I have scripture in my notes. I'm just, uh, this one's just going to come right off the press here. Open to Genesis 12. Do it. I can see whether or not you're doing it. Genesis 12 is a huge turning point in scripture. In fact, Genesis 12 starts to answer the question Genesis 1 through 11 starts. Genesis 1 through 11 says, it's all broke. You broke it. The good God created it. He created it to be good. He created you to be with him. And what'd you do with it? You just broke it. You messed it up. And we can joke about it, but that's the big thing. We just talked about chaos and the whole need for Jehovah Shalom and the whole need for peace because things are disorderly and chaotic. You broke it. I broke it. We do these things that go against what God wants. And so we tried to fix it with our own towers. We tried to fix it with our own little planting our vineyards and getting drunk in a tent and all these different things through Noah and through his sons and and, and through all the, the sons of God mixing with the daughters of just all this mess. Nothing's fixing it. And so Genesis 12 comes. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country." The Lord speaks. That's how it starts. Here's the mess, and the Lord speaks. Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your. I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all. The families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families shall be blessed. How's God fixing it? God speaks to Abraham. Why? Why does he speak to Abraham? Does he like people to name Abraham? Does he like people or people to name Abram? Does he just happen to like people from the land of, you know, wherever Abraham's from? Ur, us? I get those confused. Either way. He, no. All we know is God is still intervening with humans. Why? Why Abram? We don't know. But God speaks, and he says, you don't have to go build a tower. You don't have to do this because your name isn't great because you choose to be great. You're not going to be great because you say you're going to define good for you by yourself. You're going to, to uh, be like God yourself. You're great because I'm great. God says, I will make a name for you. And through you, other people will be blessed because they'll look to you and they'll see me, which sounds a lot like being created in the image of God because that's always been God's plan. Do you see the theme? This is so important because it's going to come up all through Scripture. These things are all connected. So how do things go with Abram? Let's just kind of talk through it. Uh, those of you have been reading or if you just know the stories, uh, Abram, is he a good guy, bad guy? Pass or fail? How does he do? He fails, right? Come on, read the story. We want to give, I, man, I want to talk to you Sunday school people who maybe think that you were taught that Abraham's a good guy. Let me just step all over you for a minute. Abraham is a terrible guy, a terrible guy. He... He literally has this weird sexual abuse thing going on with this slave, and we pass off as, "Oh well, just people back then did bad things." No. He goes directly against what God says and has Hagar get pregnant, right? Because of struggles with his wife intention, doubting God. He directly lies about his wife, potentially putting her in sexually damaging situations because he doesn't want to be killed. He is not a faithful guy. He's not a great guy, right? And so maybe you have it because the Bible later on talks about how great Abraham is. They talk about how great Abraham is, talk about how great God is. <laughs> Because look what God had done. Because no one who looks back on Abraham says, man, his story is a story of awesomeness. It's this high and low. Read through the stories. Like, is that the kind of man you want your kids to be? No, come on. Let's be real. Right? And so then, so then Abraham has all this struggle. And then what? we go on to that. What about, what about Abraham's kids? Ishmael, Isaac, are they good guys? Things go well for them? Now they do the same thing their dad does, right? Same struggles, same tension. Uh, it's all these problems there. What about uh, Isaac's kid, Jacob, Esau? We, we read up through some of their stories. How do they do? His name literally means deceiver, right? Like, No offense, those of you who are named Jacob. Um, now, and there's some argument on what that means in Hebrew. But in general, Jacob's life is marked by being a, a jerk, like twisting things to get what he wants, right? All these people, post-Abraham, God creates his blessing so so, what's the hope here, right? These are these our people. That's, oh, God's going to make a great name for them, and so you put yourself. Okay, this is where it is. Ah, but it's all messed up. But God continues to work through them. God continues to bring good things from bad. He continues to create good things, and He creates order from chaos. More on that next week when we sum up all of Genesis. But that's that's the posture of God. In fact, if you read these stories and you just answer this question, what does this story say about humanity? What does this story say about God? You consistently come back to, God must have some really intense desire to make things right with us because we are terrible in having good relationships. We're really bad at it. And even those of us who like, want to look at all the love stories that we want to have in our lives, like the whole reason we have love stories and romance novels and all these things is because they're a hint of the right relationship we wish we actually had with our creator. A hint of we actually had the right relationship God intended for us to have. God wants to bring us to a right relationship with him like we had in Eden. That was the vision from the beginning. In fact, here's your second Bible nerd moment. The narrative is constantly hitting back at Eden. Uh, You probably don't read Hebrew. I don't read it very well. Um, But uh, one of the things that you'll notice, uh, trees. Man, I promised my wife I wouldn't talk for an hour about trees. So if you start getting really bored, let me know how bored you are. But Bible nerd people, this is your second moment. Here we go. Mark in Scripture how often there is a connection between God speaking and having a right relationship with someone, and a tree being mentioned. God intercedes. There's a tree. Where are trees first mentioned in Scripture? Yeah, there's two trees in the garden. What are they? Yeah, the tree. Yeah, it's a, I can hear you guys say it. the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And they don't get to eat from the tree of life because they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. Right? Right. Then later on, you see all these trees popping up. Why is it mentioning the oaks of Mamre? Why is it mentioning this tree here and there? Did you know in Hebrew, the same word for tree, bush, shrub, bundle of sticks, all the same word? Did you know that the tree that of life is said to be on a hill where God dwells, the tree of life. You come and eat from that. God is up there on the hill with the tree. Hills, trees, mountains, they're all significant. And interesting enough, if you read, ooh, we don't have time for this. Read Genesis 12. What happens God speaks to Abraham, and he's near a tree, the oaks. And then he goes up a mountain and pitches his tent there to dwell with God. Why? Because it's a call back to Eden. God is making a micro-Eden with Abraham because God speaks. There's trees present, right? Moses talks to God at what? A burning bush. Same word for tree, right? Isaac carries a bundle of what? Up the mountain for the sacrifice. Same word for tree, bundle of sticks, right? Whoa! This this analogy is all through Scripture. Why? This is Bible nerd stuff. Some of you are like, okay, I don't care. Hebrew, trees, whatever. Tree, 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 tree. If you're that interested, I can send you a study guide that'll tell you all the trees in Scripture. Super fascinating stuff. But here's why. Because God has so intricately woven Scripture together to make the same narrative. No matter how deeply you study it or how quickly you read over it, there's one common theme, that God wants a right relationship with you, just like he had need. You want to see what God intends? Read Genesis 1 and 2. That's the end. Y'all get so caught up on, oh, the mark of the beast, and maybe this is happening in the Middle East, and maybe this I'm going to interpret these signs. Forget about it. Like, we're not meant to interpret signs and know exactly what's going to happen in the end times. You want to know what the end looks like? It's the beginning. God desires to have a right relationship with you, like Eden, where he dwells with you. The dwelling place of God is with man. Revelation 21, right? Tree stuff, enough on that. Why does God do this? Why is God constantly going through this? I mean, we just mentioned we could go through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ishmael, all these different people. Man, all messed up. God is faithful. Say, God is faithful. God says things, and then he does it. He's faithful. It says, God is faithful, and he will do it. Do what? It's going to make all things good. It's going to make it all right through Jesus Christ. We're going to land in Genesis 15 today. Turn to Genesis 15. We're going to talk through that, and we're going to talk about... God's faithfulness. We're going to read all of Genesis 15, but it's going to go pretty fast. So don't get too concerned. Uh, but there's a lot here. And I imagine when you read this, maybe it went pretty quickly through you. Kind of like anytime you hear locations in scripture, sometimes it kind of throws us off. And we're like, why was Egypt randomly mentioned? I don't know. Why, why are the oaks of Mamre mentioned? Why are these trees here? Why did the three guys who come to me with Abraham, they go sit in the shade of the tree? Who cares, right? To a Hebrew when they're reading this, they say, whoa, whoa. These all things are connected. These things have significant meaning, right? And so in Genesis 15, there's several things that stand out here that we might miss. Let's start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. After what things? Wait a minute. What happened? Hold on. What happened in Genesis 14? So uh, God calls Abraham out, and he doesn't just go with Abraham and Sarah. Who does he take with him? Lot, right? His nephew, Lot, right? So Lot, good guy, bad guy. Yeah, he's not too great, right? And then he gets into this squabble over sheep and stuff with with these kind of mini kings, and there's all these battle fights going on. Uh, It's kind of this interesting picture. Abraham's kind of up on the mountain with the trees, with the tent that he pinched, worshiping God. He builds an altar up there. He's hanging out, and down here is all this squabbling happening, right? Again, this picture of Eden, right? Separation, God making things right. Anyway, so Abram decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get 300-something mercenaries together, because apparently that's what you have when you're Abram and you have all this stuff. So he gets all his little uh, covert ops guerrilla mission people together and they go and they take over uh they take back lot and all the things that were stolen and all that. And so then after that, you get this story. And so the author's saying, "Hey reader, you remember that stuff that just happened? Abram's probably a little concerned that he just, you know, went up against all these kings and took his neighbor like are they going to retaliate? Are they going to kill him?" In a vision, the Lord says, "Fear not, Abram. I am your shield." Abram doesn't need to shield himself. The Lord is his shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Hey God, what will you give me? For I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will uh, and, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. You shall, uh, he's, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So there's this tension here where God comes and says, hey, I'm going to protect you. It's all oh, great. Great, God. Thanks. You're going to protect me. Uh, but, but about this child thing you promised, because God had told them like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a son. And they're very old here at this point. I mean, they're in their, they're 90s. Raise your hand if you're a great grandparent. Okay. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're a grandparent then. Any of you? Great. So, uh, those of you who just raised your hand, are y'all going to have kids this year? Probably not, right? That's probably not going to happen. And that's fine if it does. Praise God. You know, God be the glory. But here there's this weird thing where it's like, hey, we're going to give you an heir. And this is a big thing to him because Abraham's concerned. Wait a minute. Like you said, you tell me you're my shield. You're protecting me. But hold on, God. You said you were going to give me an heir. And my wife can't have babies. We're great grandparents here. Like, come on. Like, what's going on? And God says, this man should not be your heir, Eliezer, your very own shall be your heir. And he brought him out and said, look towards the heavens and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to them, uh, so shall be your offspring. Have you guys ever seen the stars on a really dark night? There's just, we tried to get a picture up here, but because of darkness and screens and projectors, it wasn't going to work. So you can imagine though, close your eyes. Imagine the most beautiful star gaze you've ever seen. All these stars out there. Now imagine the silliness of trying to count them. Do it. I know you know you can't, but just in your mind, try to count them. It gets really annoying after like 22. I don't know why that's the number, but like 22, you're just like, ugh, the 20s, everything gets thrown off. Maybe that's real life too. The 20s are hard. But you can't count them. That's the point. You can open your eyes now. Uh, Some of you weren't closing your eyes. You were just watching me close my eyes. So you're counting. And then God, this is silliness. This is like comedy. Hey, can you count the stars? You can't count the stars, but I will give you so many offspring beyond what you can measure. What a silly thing for God to say to a great grandma who's barren. like right? Verse 6, here's the big one. This verse is quoted so often in Scripture. Verse 6, 15-6. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. We're used to that. We're used to this sort of idea. I want to unpack it because there's kind of this exchange. What does this mean? like is 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 he like like rolling well. Abram's rolling well at the ski ball and the tickets have come out so now he can exchange it to God for righteousness. He's won. Now he can get the big stuff prize of righteousness. I'm exchanging my belief. How's this work, right? We need to define some terms here. Let's start with, with the hard one because I think we can all intuitively understand belief or faith. Although uh, Dallas Wood says, we live, in a culture, uh, we live in a culture who professes things we don't even believe and we believe things we're not even committed to. I'm going to say that again because it's an important quote. We live in a culture who profess things we don't really believe. And we believe things we're absolutely not committed to. And I want you to think about that, because so many of us don't really care about football at all until our team's winning. And then we really like the Chiefs, we really like the Bengals, whoever's winning, right? Uh, So much of us don't really care about certain baseball teams until they're winning. So many of us don't really care about government until that one person in our family really is mad at this one other person. Oh, and I really really care about this, right? We don't really get committed to things too often because our life isn't really at stake for them. But belief is actually a core part. Let's talk about righteousness first. Righteousness—the Greek word is sadiq. You say sadiq, sadiq, right? Uh, Here's this blew my mind. Righteousness—I got to get chalk for this. Get pumped. Righteousness is a relationship word. Say relationship word. This is important because we kind of like, when, when, when do you use righteousness outside of a church or religious context? Do you guys do a business deal and say, man, this, this guy at Riley Toyota, he's selling me this car. I would say, you know, he's a righteous man and I feel like this is a righteous agreement. And so we, we signed and it was a righteous purchase. You've, you've never said that, right? You don't even use it this week outside of reading the Bible. Have you ever used the word? Raise your hand if you use the word righteous in common language outside of religion. You don't. Why? Because it's not, it's not used too typically, right? It's important to note this is a relationship word. It's a standard of being in right relationship. Let me give you an example. You are a spouse, let's say, and a parent, Tell me a few things about, what does a good parent do? Anyone? You've had good parents, or at least you've seen a good movie about good parents. What does a good parent do? We're going to have to be a little more clear. Keeps them alive. alive. Okay. We're going to say cares, cares for. What else? Good spouse. What does a good spouse do? Listens. Oh, man. Listens. That's a good one listens, what else? Yeah, there we go. I was was looking for the big L word at some point. Love, right? They love. Okay. And, and so we could, we could listen on and on. Listens, loves, um, pays for snacks. Some spouses really like snacks. Hey, two things you can do for your spouse and for your kids. Buy them snacks. There we go. Amen. Right. So no. So all of these things though, would point to the value of the relationship. You can't find something that a good spouse or a husband does that isn't a part of the meaningful good relationship. Even if you try to argue bad things like, well, this individual moment of spanking seems bad. Well, someone mentioned discipline, I believe, right? So discipline long term, though, does that aid in the relationship? Yeah, a good parent loves their child enough to discipline them, right? And so then you have this whole idea of that. Let's do it. This, this gets, maybe some of you are like, married and kids, forget about it. I'm sick of you talking about that. That's fine. Let's do entrepreneur. I'm going to write E-N-T-R-P-R-U-N-E-R-B-D-U-P-T-R because that's the hardest word to spell if you don't have Google. Her entrepreneur, right? Now, what does a good business entrepreneur person do? Honest. They're honest. Fantastic. Think about a good employer, right? What does a good employer do? Ah, they work hard. They work, mm, they work hard, right? They work with their employees. They're not just like, you go do this. You go, no, no. They work hard. That's fantastic, right? You get where I'm going with this. We could list other things. Pick a role in life. Imagine, what does it mean to be righteous? It's a relationship word. So now, hold on. Abram, God counted it to him as righteousness. So something Abram did, God counted that as a right relationship with God. Again, we're back to this whole God's ultimate desire is this Eden idea that we have a right relationship with him. Let's talk about the word belief, right? There's a slide we've got up here that actually defines both these things. I'll move it here. So righteous, it's a relationship word. It's the standard of being in right relationship. Faith means believing faith slash belief. It's all kind of connected. Faith means believing in the words of God despite what my eyes may see and what my mind may understand, right? God spoke to Abram. God speaks good things. He spoke and Abraham chose to believe it despite what his eyes saw. His wife's barren. She's old, can't have kids. I don't have any kids. You say you're gonna be my shield. Nothing makes sense, God. Maybe you've been there. Some of us know what it's like not to have kids. Some of us know what it's like to lose kids. Some of us knows what it's like to have a tension in your relationship, like with your spouse or or with your with a child or with your coworker. You understand this tension to believe that things are going to be made right despite what you see and despite what, what things you know, that's faith. And Abraham doesn't just have faith in absurd things. So people talk about blind faith and stupid faith. Abram's having faith in what? What God says, he has faith in God. That's what he chooses. He says, I have faith in God. And God sees and says, this is what makes us have a right relationship. Because you believe in me. You trust in me. That seems so basic and base level to us. But I promise you that you'll struggle with that by the end of this afternoon. You'll mix it up. You'll misunderstand what it means. You'll get in this false idea that you can be like God one way evil does. It says, you know what? You missed church last week, so you've got to go to church for three weeks, and then God will be happy with you. You didn't really sing this song because your kids were distracting you, so you need to worship more later on today. You didn't read your Bible. You're three days behind, and other people in the church aren't. You've got, you got to do this. You've got to do this. Abram believed. He believed who God was. And God said, okay, we're going to have a right relationship because you believe in my words. You trust in me. There's two kinds of righteousness. There's a righteousness we earn by doing right, by doing the things that we should do that should bring the right relationship. The dad who does the right thing, the spouse, the entrepreneur, they earn the right relationship. And then there's the real righteousness, the acknowledgement that we actually can't do any of that right because every good entrepreneur does something wrong. Every good parent does something wrong. Every good spouse does something wrong. And so you're not actually righteous. You've blemished the relationship. This is why we need forgiveness. This is why we need grace. You know this because you have this in your relationship. You've asked your spouse. You've asked your employer. You've asked someone in your life for forgiveness at some point. You're not righteous. The second kind of righteousness is righteousness that's given to us by God because he is right. He has an eternal, perfect, right relationship with himself. And he calls us into that relationship by giving it to us. He imparts that on us. The first time righteousness is mentioned in Scripture, anyone know? It's one guy who's called to be righteous Noah. It's Noah. Noah. Good job. Hey, good job, class. Noah was said to be righteous, and it's tricky because some translations might translate to be just before God, and that word sadiq, like the the noun there can be, or or the adjective, it can be also just and right, and I think it's interesting those things connect together because we want to have things be right, and if they're right, then they'll also be just. And we all have this internal desire. If something's wrong or broken around us, we want to fix it. We want it to be right. We want it to be just. We want it to be good. Right? And there's a desire. And so, Noah found favor with God because He was righteous. And it seems like if you just read the narrative, Noah's doing good things. He finds favor with God because he's righteous. Everyone else stinks, right? They're all sleeping with angels and stuff. And then Noah's not. That's kind of how the narrative goes. It's weird. Like Noah's doing the right stuff. Oh, I got to be like, no, I got to do the right stuff. How does Noah go ultimately in his doing the right stuff, doing the right relationship with God? Does he stay good? No. Like Noah makes mistakes. He messes it up. What about Abraham's righteousness? After this story, does Abram just do all the right things? No. It's so important. We read the Bible sometimes as these characters, like, oh, we've got to imitate all these people. That's the whole point. None of these characters are people we can actually imitate because they actually relate to all of us that they consistently fail. And they have these great moments of faith where it's credited them as righteousness, and then they just immediately blow it. Like right now, when Abram starts questioning God and doubting, God is faithful, God is eternal. All these people both miserably fail, but God continues to see righteousness on them. He gives them righteousness because they have faith in him. How does God do this? Listen to this. God is eternal and you are not. And God sees things connected that you can't possibly see how they're connected. And so on the one hand, we can say, man, God knows that Abraham's going to make a mistake. God knows that the Egyptian or the, the children of Israel are going to complain in the desert. He knows they're going to make the golden calf. He knows they're going to wander and split and have all this tension. He knows people are going to doubt Jesus right before this famous verse that we quote every Sunday. It says, "And some of them doubted." It's like they just you just saw Jesus. He's raised from the dead. How are you doubting? God knows that. And so, how does that work? Romans four helps unpack this: that God knows that that this faith is actually internal and forever. And that God always had a plan from the beginning to redeem things through him, through Jesus, which we'll see more of here in a minute in Genesis 15. Look at Romans 4. Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his flesh? I mean, the things he did, the things he worked out, his, his uh, physical things that he was able to do. For if Abraham was justified by works, he, was some, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. But the words, it was counted to him, were not just written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus is the righteous one. He's the one that has the right relationship with God, and so our faith in him is what makes us right. Abram had no idea that his faith was connected to Jesus, But God is eternal. And God sees things differently. And in fact, just a small word for you who maybe get really sick of all the church stuff and you're just barely here, you're watching from home and you're hanging on by a thread. I don't know why we live in a world where things don't go the way that we think they should. There's things that aren't right. There's things that aren't just. I don't know why just all church numbers are down everywhere because people are sick. I don't love that. I don't like hearing that people's cancer is progressing. I don't like living in a world where people can't have babies when they pray and pray for. I don't like living in a world where you have a baby and then it dies. Like I don't, I don't like those things. But I'm 36 as of Friday and God's eternal. And we're going to see things differently. And so the best I can do is have faith that he is who he says he is. I believe him at his word, despite what my mind says, despite what my eyes see. I read his word and I say, he's the God of covenants. He's the God of promises. He does what he says because we have an empty tomb. Because we have a savior that bled and died for us. And so when we put faith in God, we see that fulfilled in Christ. We put faith in Christ, we receive his righteousness. We receive His Spirit, which marks us as eternally bound to Him, which transforms us into the Eden life He always wanted for us. I'm getting ahead. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake He made Him be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Carrying on in Genesis 15, verse 7. Abraham believes, it's credited Him as righteousness. Then we get this weird stuff. And He said to Him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur, not us, uh, Chaldeans, to give you this land for you to possess it. But Abram said, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Here's the kicker. Just, just follow the narrative. If you're not reading, just follow it. I'm going to give you all this land. How will I know you're going to give me the land? God? How will I know? I want to trust your word, but how will I know? God says, Bring me a heifer. Right? Come on. Like, come on. Be in the story. How often do we have a... We're talking. Come on. This side of the room. We're just talking. You say, hey, man, this great thing's going to happen this week. Well, David, how do you know it's going to happen? Hey, bring me one of your heifers. What? Like, come on, like, don't, <laughs> we read this so quick, it's like, oh, ancient people, they do weird things, I read Beowulf in school, weird things happen, this is so strange, the God who is just like, I'm your shield, I see everything, I'm with you, you're gonna have this, air, and, and you believe in my word, also, go get a heifer, have you used the word heifer this week? No, right? Maybe you did. Um, some of you, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a derogatory term in your world. I don't know. But go get a heifer, right? He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat and, uh, a th- three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Go get a small Arabic zoo, please. Just bring it here. How am I going to know God? Well, we'll just, just bring me some animals. Super weird, man, I want us to lean into how weird this is, so and Abram does it, why? because he believes in the lord, so they say okay god 's word's true, so i 'm going to go get this small barnyard full of creatures. he brings them to God, and he brought him these, and he cut them in half that 's what it says he cut you remember when she nailed the tent peg through his scalp right, and we just really had to emphasize in in judges. Don't let, don't read past that because there's now a tent peg in the dude's head. We're in the same situation here, right? This is a few little words, and he cut them in half. Please think through in your mind a cow right now, three-year-old. I don't actually know how big cows get at three years old. I'm assuming pretty big, probably larger than me. I'm 230 pounds, right? So probably bigger. Uh, farmers, three years old, yeah, they're big. Three-year-old cow, right? And then there's also a three-year-old goat, right? And then you've got buoys and, and all these animals, and he's cutting The biggest ones in half. Side note, if you're a nerd like me, is he cutting them this way or this way? (laughs) I don't know. I didn't look at the Hebrew there. Maybe Nate will tell us later. But you wonder, right? Because if you're cutting them this way, oh gosh, raise your hand if you've gutted an animal ever in your life. Chicken, deer, turkey, squirrel, rat. right? Is it a clean venture? It is a mess. Now imagine, Right? You don't have your razor-sharp, mechanically sharpened, super ni- nice, outdoor legends knife, right, that you got for Christmas. You don't have that. You don't have your Victorinox steel knife that you use every time you get to gear. You don't have all that. You've got ancient knifey things, and you're cutting these animals in half. This is a bloody, this is like a weird horse. God, we're having this beautiful conversation. How will I know? Well, why don't you just slaughter a few animals and cut them to pieces for me? What? It's just so weird. And so this is what he does, right? He goes and he he cuts them in half and he lays each half over against the other, right? But he didn't cut the birds in half. I don't know why. Maybe he ripped their heads off, Aussie'd them, I don't know know what he did. But he didn't cut the birds in half. That's important. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. It's literally like the Hebrews here is like, shoo, shoo. So you get this image. Put this in your mind. This is so important. There is half of Animal carcasses right here. So this speaker, bloody mess of half of creatures, right? Open space, probably still full of blood, but open pathway. And then other half, right? That's the noise for carcass mess. And it's here and it's bloody and it's gory, right? And so Abram does this thing. And then as comedy goes, like birds are coming in. And he's like, oh, shoo, shoo, get out of here, birds. What a weird story, Right? gets deeply meaningful really quickly. Uh, if you don't know, if no one's ever taught you, Jeremiah 34 kind of unpacks this, but we know this from other stories too in, in uh, Canaanite literature and in, in extra biblical literature in history. We know that covenants were made this way. They would split animals in half and they would put them on either side in the pathway between them. So remember it said carcasses, carcasses, and then they would walk between them. <laughs> So you strut when you go between carcasses. No, so you'd walk between them, right? And what you were doing is you were making a covenant. Say covenant? Covenant. Yeah, I don't always have you say Greek and Hebrew words, right? So covenant, and it means it's like a bond, it's a binding thing, a legal, it's also kind of a relationship word. It's a legal transaction, right? And and Jeremiah 34 kind of reminds us that when you read it, there's this idea that if I break this covenant. May I be split and ripped apart like these animals. That's the idea here with this covenant. And so Abram knows. We don't know when we read the story at first. We're just like, what is happening? Abram gets it immediately. Okay, cool. I'm going to cut animals in half like you do. And I'm going to make two pathway like you do. And so Abram does all this, right? So they're going to make this covenant. It's an exciting thing. Okay, this is how God's going to show them. They're going to make a covenant together. This is what happens. And they're both going to be bound to this. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in, that is, in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here. The fourth generation for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. So, uh, side note here, we're going to keep reading, but he falls into a deep sleep. Does that sound like any other character we've read so far? Adam, right? Adam falls into this deep sleep. Interesting, man, you could draw all sorts of connections here. Um, We're not going to have time for that. But it's interesting, right? Both characters fall into a deep sleep, and God acts, and God does something to complete his plan, right? It's not good that the man's alone. Deep sleep, boom. I form Eve. God forms Eve, right? That's a complete, a helpmate form. It completes him. Then there's making this covenant, puts a deep sleep on him. What happens? God says, hey, things are going to go pretty rough for you. He's talking about Exodus stuff. We're going to read about that when we get to Exodus here in a few weeks. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring, I give you this land. And then he goes and he mentions a whole lot of places that he's given them land. Abraham's in this deep sleep, this darkness. God trances him like he does Adam. So, Abraham's what? Expecting. Here's what we expect to read in this story. Abraham and God walk this covenant. Because Abraham says, How will I know? How will I know you're going to do this? And God would say, well, I'm going to make this covenant, right? And we'll both walk it. You keep your end of the bargain, I keep mine. And if we don't, we're ripped apart, right? That's the bloody, gory, intense language here. Instead, the God of faithfulness, the God of promises, he puts a trance over Abraham. And he comes down as a, as a smoking, flaming pot with a fire torch. This is common analogy. All through Scripture, you've got these things of smoke, fire, wind, water. These are powerful forces of nature that God controls. We can't quite control them, but God controls them. And he comes down, and that is his image amongst us, is these powerful things of wind and fire and water and smoke. And God comes down. His presence is there as this smoking pot. Catch this. God walks the path. Does Abram walk the path? No, God says to Abram this day, if I break this covenant, I'll be split apart and I will die. If you break this covenant, I will be split apart and I will die. God takes all of the risk on himself because God knows that all Abraham has is belief partially sometimes. And it's intense faith, and we can uplift it and say, Abraham's a really faithful guy, but you can also read the story, so he's not a faithful guy a lot of times. God knows that Abraham's gonna miss it, that he's gonna struggle. God says, I'm gonna take on this punishment. I'm gonna take on your faithlessness because God is faithful. Say, God is faithful. God does it, He puts it all on Him. He only desires that we believe in Him, that we have faith. There's a, a video we are going to watch on, I joked with tech team. This is kind of my MO this year. As I say, there's a video and then I decide we don't have time for it. So I'm going to do that again, Wade, a. Uh, but we'll post it later. It's a great video on covenants and it'll help you explain how Jesus is that we've already been talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of that, right? Jesus is righteous. When Jesus hit the scene, he said in Mark 115, repent and believe in the gospel. I want you to go with me to a scene Jesus sitting with his disciples very shortly before Jesus is crucified and killed shortly before he resurrects and ascends. He's having a meal, the disciples, it's the Passover meal. And, and in that Passover meal, it's a time where it symbolizes, it reminds them of how God delivered them out of Exodus with uh, painting blood on the doors, right? And so the doors like the, the uh, angel Lord passed over. And, and so they, they were saved. God rescued them from Egypt. And so this bloody mark on the door, rescued them. Similarly, Abraham split this bloody mess in a covenant with God, and God says, I will take on this punishment. Even when you completely mess it up, I will suffer. I will die. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 22. You can read it on the screen. You can look it up. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer, for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, "Take this and divide it among and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes." And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it; he split it, and he gave it them saying, "This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. God is faithful. I can't overemphasize how this whole story continually points to Jesus as we read the Bible over and over and over. Jesus is righteous because we cannot be righteous. Jesus offers us the right relationship because he came and he did all the stuff we were supposed to do. He was the true Adam. He was the true Abraham. He was the true Moses. He did all the things we were supposed to do. And when Jesus sits with his disciples, he reminds them, all these stories that you have of covenants in blood and sacrifice in blood on the door and bloody animals ripped apart and animals being burnt up and sacrificed, all that falls on me. This is the cup of the new covenant because Jesus takes on all pain. First Peter two twenty four. Later on, Peter writes as a disciple, of Jesus, he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. And he pulls this phrase from Isaiah, which was many, many, many years before Peter's life, many years before Jesus's life. Isaiah, the prophet wrote this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is righteousness. He is faithful. So what do I do? What do you guys do with this, this information? Neat story, bloody animals, we made jokes, we laughed about it. What do we do about this? If you're like me, then there's a constant struggle of not actually seeing peace. There's a constant struggle of believing that you've got to do more, you've got to be better, you've got to check off your list of all the things that God expects of you so you can do it, so you can be right. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Faith is believing that the words of God are true. Despite what you see, despite what you know in your mind, what you think, repent and believe in the gospel. He is our peace, He is our righteousness. Every week I wanna quote as much as I can the response when Peter preaches in Acts two and uh, in Acts two thirty seven. They heard these things when he preaches the gospel and they were cut to heart. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're hearing these things, you're watching from, you're seeing here like, Whoa, this God took on my punishment? Hold oh. God, from the beginning, God was making this covenant. God knew from the beginning that everyone would be unfaithful, that no one would be faithful but him, that no one could uphold this covenant. And so God, from the beginning, said, I will take on this punishment. If you break this covenant, I will die. Maybe that's the first time you've heard it. Maybe you're cut to heart. They said to Peter, what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Repent change your mind, look to Jesus, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's personal presence dwelling with us, just like Eden, God's Spirit enters us, gives us life, teaches us how to live, makes us live as Christ, as we trust in Him. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Maybe you're not a believer this morning. You're watching from home. You're, you're, you're sitting in here. Maybe you randomly stumbled across this video right now in God's providence, and you're just like, man, I don't connect with this. I don't know. God is teaching you his gospel right now. He's saying, you have broke this covenant that I made with you. But it's okay, because I died. I did it for you. And he's asking you to believe in him, to repent, to say, I'm going to give up all the ways that I want to look at this world. I'm going to look to Jesus and believe that he really has authority, that he's with me always. Maybe that's your action this morning. You need to say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to repent and believe. Maybe you've clearly been unfaithful. You're a believer and you're sitting in here and your world is in chaos. You're struggling with doubt. You care much more about. Complaining with Job because things are messed up, and, and this whole thing of like God's covenant of faith is just distant from you. I want you to be reminded this morning that He is with you always, that He has all authority, and He took on all of your punishment. He was broken, He bled, He died so that you didn't have to. And maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning that your sin is so great that it really did kill God but he loves you so much that that he actually rose from the dead and he defeated all the things that are turning you against him so you could have a right relationship with him, righteousness. And so maybe your response this morning, Christian church member, maybe you just need to come and pray. Say, man, I, I need to believe in God. I need to believe that his word is true, that it's not about me. It's not about what I'm doing. It's about him and his glory and everything he did. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you've never committed to the Lord in that way. Maybe you need to join the church. Listen, man, God didn't give you all this just for you. Get that out of your head. That's this weird Western adulteration that says you're the most important person in the world and it's all about you and God did all this just for you so you can have a happy life. God did it for us. Scripture is a communal document and it is for us as his children. That's what he says. For those of his family, for those who come together, you and your families, like all together. We're one body. And so you struggle, I struggle. It's been a terrible week. It's been so hard. And there are moments this week where I think everything's fine and then moments where I can't hold anything together. But thank God that we have the church. There's so many of you that have texted at the most ridiculous times that are just so perfect. There's so many of you that have done things to comfort my wife and I. And so many of you have experienced that in your suffering. This is the church. This is what it means to be one body. And so if you don't have that in your life, if you're not a part of that, you're missing it. God didn't save you. God didn't walk the covenant. God didn't die for you through Jesus. He didn't do that just so you could be okay and your life could be right. He did that so you could be a part of his kingdom, his right relationship with humanity, the new humanity in Christ Jesus. Please be a part of the church. We're in this together. We're one body. Read the New Testament. It's all the point. His kingdom come, his will be done. This morning, we're going to respond in, in several ways. Maybe you need to come forward and give your life to the Lord. Maybe you need to pray. But we're going to respond with the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, we're going to sing a song here in a minute. And as we sing that song, you can come and get your elements. You can come pray. You can, uh, if you need to give your life to the Lord, be baptized. Any of those decisions you can do during this time as, as the band comes, as, as we walk into this. I want you to remember... That the Lord's Supper, this isn't this communion thing we're doing. This isn't a magical thing that saves you. This reminds us of who God is. It reminds us of the faith that we have. Just like Jesus was excited to celebrate Passover with his disciples. Why? So they could remember what God's always done. And Jesus knew that in God's providence that it was Jesus' blood ultimately. It was always Jesus. It was always his blood. He was always going to be shed. God was always going to cut himself and die so that we could be saved. And so when the disciples looked back, they had celebrated Passover a ton. And now Jesus redefined and said, actually, it's my blood. It's my broken body. And, and it's a new covenant for everyone. And so when we do this here in a minute, it's not these magic elements that save you. It's us declaring as one body, Jesus is Lord. And we remember that he is with us always and that he was crushed so that we could be forgiven. We're going to sing a song. You can come and respond as you need and you can get your elements and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together here in a moment. God, I pray that you would guide us as we respond. May your spirit move. Your spirit bring, bring truth and life to the things we've heard, to the things that, that have been said. God, guide us as we respond to you, as we trust in your faithfulness, your covenant. God, help us believe. Help us believe in the righteousness that you give us in Christ. Guide us as we struggle now. Help our unbelief.